Hello, I'm Alexander Ritz, the executive director here at Long Now. Our work at Long Now is focused on the long term, including the aspects of human life that have lasted through the ages. One of these is music. The oldest musical instruments we have found are bone flutes over 40,000 years old, and we can only imagine how far back music goes in human evolution. This is why we are honored to have Dr. Eric Deborah O'Cherry with us to discuss the role music plays in human social settings. Dr. O'Cherry joins us from the University of Cape Coast in Ghana, where he serves as the head of the Department of Music and Dance. His talk today focuses on his fieldwork studying the work songs of fishermen in Ghana, tracing sonic traditions that reach back hundreds or even thousands of years. These fishers use songs for everything from keeping time to transmitting political messages. And the diversity and creativity of their songs tell us a lot about why we, as a species, have been singing for so long. Before we hear from Dr. O'Cherry, a quick thank you. The Long Now Foundation is entirely supported by donors and members. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of Long Now and supporting the series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. This talk was also made possible by our partnership with Stanford University's Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, otherwise known as CASBIS. CASBIS is an amazing incubator program that brings together scholars from a range of fields to think about deep questions in the human sciences. Eric Debrocheri was a 0-2020-2021 fellow at CASBIS when he gave this talk. Without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Ocheri. Thank you very much, Zenda, for the warm introduction. It's really an honor to be part of the Long Now Talk, and I'm happy for the invitation. Now, think for a moment about the sounds that people make when they are involved in physically exacting activities, weightlifting, martial arts, tennis, tug of war, you name them. Sounds such as ah, ooh, mmm. Well, these sounds are universal. Sometimes, these sounds are even involuntary, monosyllabic, and most of the time, actually non-lexical because they are not words that you can look the meaning up in a dictionary. But these words are functional. These sounds contribute to the total achievement of the goals of the work. These sounds are evolutionary adaptations. Think for a moment about what happens in the human gas exchange process when we breathe in or we breathe out. The production of these sounds such as ah, oh, mm, these sounds that accompany manual labor or when people work and these sounds that come out. These sounds, they require contraction of the diaphragm which pushes out stale or deoxygenated air from the lungs quicker than would happen in normal breathing. At the same time, the open mouth allows for a bigger swoop of oxygen intake which gets into the bloodstream and supports the muscles involved in the execution of the task to function more effectively. The timing of the sound is equally important. They occur at the point when the exertion of the energy is needed the most. That is at the individual level. Individuals 
involved in hard tasks and making these sounds. But what happens when the work involves a coordinated effort with more than one person? Making the sounds at different points will definitely result in noise, which will be counterproductive. Exerting the energies at different points in time will lead to less productivity. Synchronization then becomes very necessary. Sounds are synchronized to provide reference points for the exertion of energies which result in higher productivity. I mean, you can think about the one, two, three, heave ho, or such other verbal cues that call on people to coordinate their efforts and apply their energies at the same time. Synchronization of sound for extended periods, after all, appears to be a unique human trait. Now, imposing some kind of order on the sound, which is the pitches, in time, which is rhythm, is perhaps the minimum definition of music. The contests described show how people use sound or how they constitute sonic spaces, how they pace themselves within these sonic spaces that they have created in order to attain the most of a specified activity. It is quite easy to assume that the ultimate function of music, at least in the context of group work, is to provide reference points for synchronized activity. Right about now, I think it's important to have a look at some of these songs and what I'm talking about. Obviously, there is a large body of examples to draw on when it comes to music and work, ranging from cooperative singing in the work that requires coordinated group activity, for example, fishing, farming, pounding, through religion, music in the context of marketing and consumer behavior, to technologically enhanced, more personalized use of music, such as in, in the use of headphones while jogging or learning while engaged in some kind of cognitive activity. There is quite a substantial amount of literature that exists on work songs in general with that label, or labor songs, or occupational songs, incidental music. Depending on the author, these names have been used interchangeably, and the sources include ethnomusicological accounts, travel literature, anthropological writings, slave narratives, historical accounts, archival materials, the work of psychologists and scientists, myths and legends. I mean, the sources are many, folklore, biographies, and memoirs labor union writings, archaeological evidence, business tracts, speculations of philosophers, sociology, songbooks, recordings, and so on. All these are sources, rich sources, that have documented uh, what the label of work songs are. And I'm careful in this presentation not to use the label work songs uh, for a number of reasons that I will explain later. Today's presentation, I am trying to use and focus on aspects of my fieldwork that are based on group music making as evidenced in the songs of indigenous Sainet fishermen in Ghana. They go back many, many, many generations into history, centuries. Because of this, they offer a good platform to interrogate the changes that happen over time. The repertoire has influenced over the years other musical styles and has also been influenced by same. We are possibly staring at the final moments of some of these singing traditions. And so there is a need to start from there, to learn as much as we can from them and record it for posterity before it totally disappears. These are fishermen, examples of the songs that they sing along the shores when they are engaged in their work. 
Ghana is a West African country bordered on the north by Burkina Faso, the east by Togo, in the west by Côte d'Ivoire, and then in the south by the northeasternmost part of the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Guinea, which borders the southern part of the country. This southern part, the coastal stretch, is about 528 kilometers and harbors about 200 communities whose indigenous occupation is fishing. And fishing, not in a very mechanized sense, but fishing in the traditional sense, where they use local materials, the, the sign net that they go, or the drag net, they go and cast the net and then they come ashore and for hours they pull, they try to pull this uh, net ashore. So as I mentioned, there are about 200 communities that are involved in this small scale uh, artisanal fishing. It employs about 10% of the population, which according to our last census, estimates about 3 million people. The fishery subsector accounting for about 5% of Ghana's agricultural production in all. There are many, many ethnic groups in Ghana, but the dominant ethnic groups that populate these shores, as I mentioned, are four. And, and they are positioned mostly in four of the administrative regions of the country, namely the Volta region, being uh, the border of Ghana with Togo, Greater Accra region, which is the capital of, of Ghana, the Central region, just the colonial capital city of, of Ghana, and then the Western region, uh, which shares a border with Côte d'Ivoire. And within these regions are ethnic dominant groups. So the Ewe people populate the, the Volta region, the Ghana populate the Greater Accra region, the Fanti, subset of the Akan group, they populate the Central region, and then we have the Enzima who populate uh, the Western region. So here is an example uh, of a song sung by a migrant community, every community um, living in the Biakro, uh, a, vi a village uh, close to the University of Cape Coast. And the title of the song is Amayeleko. These indigenous fishermen, in many of the coastal towns, they used to propel their canoes and boats through manual rowers who sang as they rowed to the sea. Now, because of technology and because of modernization, many of them have bought and adopted the use of outboard motors. And because of that, the place of the manual rowing, which involved the singing and the musical practices, has now changed. And so a lot of the repertoire that was used for rowing has now found its way into other repertoires, many of which have now found their way into the repertoire of the pulling song and not the rowing songs. And this is one of the reasons that I dare say that we are probably looking at uh, one of the last generations of this uh, fishing tradition. So what they do now is they go and cast the net a few hundred meters uh, from the shore in a loop they come back to the shore and with the help of the sign nets and ropes, very long ropes, they pull the, the, they pull the cash ashore. And this is always done to music. So in this presentation, I'm going to talk about um, the, the songs that the fishermen employ in executing their work. And I'm going to do so using three main dimensions. What the music says, 
in terms of its symbolic and referential meaning, what the music does in terms of its pragmatic and functional meaning, and then what the music is in terms of its aesthetic and non-referential meaning. The main approach to studying these uh, songs, fisherman songs, has been a polyvocal ethnography approach. On-site recordings at the shore, where we record the music in the context of the work, but also bringing them to the studio. And then we do the initial sorting and theming, and we go back to do interviews and feed the themes that we have analyzed into the interviews in order to gain a deeper understanding of the work. So I will just start first from what the music says in terms of the referential and symbolic meaning. And here emphasis is on the words, the lyrics, perhaps the sounds, can distinguish between two main kinds of, of, of text in the songs. One, which are lexical words, which from the majority of the songs, about 85% of them, you have, you know, lexical words which are used. And these are words with specific meanings in the language, in the dominant language in which the music is sung. And then we also have a good number of non-lexical vocalizations. These are sounds like what I intimated earlier, which have no meanings in themselves in terms of a dictionary definition, but which are used a lot, which find their way in the music. Proverbs, anthropomorphisms, idiomatic expressions, allusions, metaphors, repetitions, personifications, zoomorphisms, anthropomorphisms, and, and on and on. A lot of literary features, literary devices. And these are markers of a very sophisticated culture. Because of these features, the construction of meaning from the text is very delicate and complex. Over time, these fisher folk have developed a kind of sub-language, which I refer to as the fisher's tongue. Now, the distinctive, distinctive features of the fisher's tongue lie more in the manner in which the words are articulated than in the lexicon itself. The manner in which they mention the words and the structure of the phrases it's quite difficult to understand even for so-called native speakers of the dominant language who are, not the fish, who are not part of the fisher folk. So in general, many of the words sound muffled, consonants are attenuated or elided, words are deliberately used in contexts which are incongruous to the regular language. Many of the borrowed words are deliberately misappropriated or should I say appropriated, so that even when one recognizes the language from which the word was borrowed, the words do not necessarily mean the same thing in the fisher's tongue. Furthermore, several words are laden with ambiguities and are often interspersed with jargon and a lot of non-lexical vocalizations. Now, this deliberate use of ambiguities have a purpose, and the purpose is, uh, among them, one of what Turner refers to, refers to as uh, multivocality or multivocalic signifiers. The ability to creatively have systems where you can have multiple meanings at the same time. And that is a safety feature. Deverroux calls that the repudiability principle. It enables them to speak about sensitive issues and yet when they are taken on, they can repudiate and say they weren't even talking about that. And for them, this is very liberating because they work is along the shores, which is an open space where anybody can go. It's a public space. So the ability to create this fisher's tongue and the ability to use all these features of the language help them to communicate among themselves and without the understanding of who are not meant 
to hear. So it helps them to channel the information uh, for, for their listeners. I would just like to give one example from the translations. And basically what, what the, the, the lead singer is saying is that I am just a simple man singing a simple song. Because I get wet from the sea, my sweat is hardly noticed. I am not the one who made promises for votes. But when the frog feels the heat from the pepper that the lizard has eaten, it is worth talking about. I don't know what I'm even talking about. I'm just singing a simple song. In the second verse of this, the singer goes on to say, I am just a simple man singing a simple song. Because I am not all dressed up in suit and tie, I am hardly noticed. I am not the one who trades sex for favors. But when the food is put on the chair and the table is used as the seat, it is worth talking about. I don't know what I am saying. I'm just singing a simple song. Now, in the last line of each of the verses that I read, the singer says that, claims that he doesn't know what he's saying. But the content of the song is popular knowledge. It is, it is news, mainstream news. Some of it are political issues about government appointees who are appointed on the basis of sex or who uh, the, the general public think that they are not qualified, but because of certain reasons they are appointed. And so songs like this help them to give and run commentaries about rather sensitive issues. And then because of these features that I already mentioned, if you take them on, they will say they were not even talking about that. This is the element of repudiability that I'm talking about. So the development of this unique language, this uh, fisher's tongue, uh, among the fishermen is a conscious attempt to own their physical and expressive space to create privacy in a public domain. For the fishermen, it is quite liberating to build this kind of world where they freely express themselves and vent their emotions without undue interference. The themes of the fishing songs are many and varied. They sing about family, they sing about love, friendship, religion, betrayal, belief in supernatural and preternatural powers, death, life after death, marriage, divorce, polygamy, infidelity, politics, and they chant a lot of obscenities as well. Something that you will not find in the day-to-day -day, uh, lives of the people. So it seems that in the context of the music, there is a lot more that they can do, which outside of the music you will not find them doing. And this speaks a lot uh, to Levitin's model. Um, in his popular book, The World Insists Songs, he gives reasons for how music may have evolved and how it may have insinuated itself in human heads over centuries. And he does so talking about mostly emotions. And I find that all these, the joy, love, comfort, knowledge, religion, friendship, are reflected and deep-seated in the kinds of music that are being sung. A lot of the contents, the lyrical content, they have types of typologies, having sort of, sort of essential labels of, of what they are, who they are, without, an, as being a conservative people, without any conscious attempt at actually getting out of this. And the songs and the content of the songs reinforce these kinds of social labels. The types of workers, personalities, and they are conservative, they enact the same scenarios, fitting themselves within these rather essentialist frames and reproducing a sense of false identity or perhaps living to fit within these established frames. By so doing, attitudes to worldview, gender, relations, 
sustainable development belief system are reinforced and are entrenched in the music of, of, of this fisher folk. So uh, many of them have even the belief that if you are rich, you don't have to show it because then other people in the community can, can harm you. And so they continue to perpetrate this idea of poverty. Of course, it is not to say that all is rosy. And many of them are actually not canoe owners. So there are people who own the canoes and who own uh, their fishing equipment. So they do the work and they have to account. And the owners of the canoe, who are the supposed rich men, they become richer because when the, the share, the catch is divided, they get a bigger portion of it. So they have a lot of songs where they criticize this, but in a very subtle way, because they also don't want to lose their jobs. And music offers them that space to vent all their disagreements and all their brought up uh, emotions. Here is an example of a song uh, that shows the state in which the fishermen find themselves, the kind of um, negative negativity or the negative violence as I mentioned. And this one is entitled Money No They Come. Money no they come, oh money no they come, oh money no they come, oh money no they come, I need a man who time. going to talk about the non-lesical expressions for a minute that why there are so many uh, at the beginning of the speech I gave sort of a scenario about how the attempt to synchronize the individual sounds may have actually resulted in music and group singing but the purpose of these non-lesical vocalizations do a bit more than I mentioned earlier among other things these functions they buy time while they the, the workers think about new songs to raise. So in that sense, these are gap fillers. They add some kind of comic relief in the way that they are uttered and they are vocalized. They help to provide a steady tempo, encouraging group participation. Here is another example of songs, basically highlighting the use of the non-lesical non vocalizations, as I mentioned, and how they provide the reference points for coordinated activity. So actually, if you analyze the songs, you realize that all these non-lesical vocalizations are those ones that occur at fixed intervals. And it is actually these ones that establish the pulse in the music. And that helps to provide a reference point for the coordinated activity. The parts that um, lesical words, they overlap and the calls, they overlap and they are actually not uh, in line with the tempo of the work itself. So the non-lesical vocalizations are short, repetitive, and they keep the pulse of the work going and they provide a steady tempo. In addition to this, it helps to provide more participation because it is very simple. All you need to do is hear it once or twice and you can join. It doesn't require any pre-rehearsals. That means that in a work that requires a lot of um, hands, when the song is not too complicated, it becomes easier for other hands to join in and sing and join them and pull the work, make the work easier. So the coordination, covering up coded messages, and most importantly, increasing the, the output of the work are some of the functions of uh, the non-lesical vocalizations. 
I now want to speak a little about what the music is. The fishing songs that are sung actually reflect the identities or the musical identities of the major or dominant ethnic group among which uh, the fishermen are located. So among the Ewe, uh, you find uh, markers of Ewe musical identity among the Ga, you may find same among the Akan and so on. So it follows the structures dominant in the ethnic groups that are involved. Most of the songs are percussive, and, and this is achieved by the use of these non-lexical vocalizations that I mentioned. And it, this is also maybe informed by ecological factors. In Southern Ghana, there are lots of trees, and so historically, the musical instruments that are dominant in Southern Ghana are instruments, rhythmic instruments, rather than melodic or harmonic instruments. And this finds its way even in the vocal music that the people sing. So often the music has rhythmic accompaniments, hand clapping, bells, bamboo, uh, or even the side of the canoe, or idiophones and so on, most of the time. Sometimes when they work, you see them clapping. Uh, the clapping is not just to provide accompaniment to the singing, but the clapping is also a way of getting their hands off momentarily uh, from, from the ropes which is quite uh, hard and which, which can actually scar your palms. And when you have the sand getting attached to the ropes, it becomes very, very uh, um, painful to pull. So when they clap or when they do some of these other activities through the music, they're actually not just entertaining themselves, but they're actually helping to complement and make the work a bit more easier. In terms of tonal organization, uh, the music is based mostly on parallel octaves which are sung in unison and you have occasional cadential parallel fourths and fifths in the voice parts. Typical rhythmic patterns, as I have mentioned, imitate the main rhythmic patterns of the musical styles of the dominant group. So overall, uh, most of the songs have a call and response uh, form and it's quite sung in quite a playful manner in a style that has many un unintelligible sound. Now the playfulness is not to say that they are talking about subjects which are not serious. They are actually talking about very serious subjects, but they do so in a playful way, in such a way that they don't stir up too much anger uh, among them. Most of the songs have frames, and so the singing and enactment that you find at the show are actually representative of the happenings within the communities themselves. Now, these frames help people to openly express themselves by alternating the text of the call part with current issues of concern in a very satiric manner. In this sense, the songs serve as a kind of moral control, a tool to keep each other in check. Because if you know you, if you mess up, you know that you mess up or you do something that is not uh, approved in the com conventional sense, uh, norms of the society, it will find its way in the songs the following morning. And everybody, you know, who know what is happening or what you have done. In that sense, because they know there is this kind of check, it helps with moral and behavioral control. Some of the songs contain sexually explicit and evocative words. These are, not these are allowed in the context of the song as long as they remain at the shore in the context of work. And hence, this is why the sonic spaces I mentioned becomes very important. Because when they leave the shores, these same people will not even want to think about such things and they do not encourage the use of profanity 
or chanting of uh, sexually explicit content. But in the context of the song, it's, it's quite liberating and they're able to do that and they chant it all the way. So the language is all involving. Uh, because of the many years of working along the shore, um, the Fanti group, the girl group, ever groups, they have crossed paths. And these days, you find everywhere almost at, along the shores of all, all the parts of Ghana. And where they find themselves in a predominant ethnic group, that becomes a place for actually interrogating how the languages and the cultures mix. Because within the songs, within the compositions itself, you find identities and markers of one ethnic group using the musical markers of one ethnic group, but using the language or the text of another ethnic group. So the, the, the music of the Fisher folk is characterized by skillful spontaneity of organized sounds. They create with text and they conform to the tonal inflections of the groups. There are a lot of um, rhythms, rhythmic alterations that happen. Although we have a steady pulse that might be identified, but we have a lot of rhythmic uh, alterations because of the multiple voices that they hear at, at the same time. And there is room for a lot of improvisation. These descriptors, as I have mentioned, they evoke some kind of Wittgensteinian conclusion. So what is music for them? What is music? Does it mean that anything else is music? Well, it will be considered as long as it bears a kind of family resemblance to other examples that are generally agreed to be music. What does the music do? I'll speak lastly on the pragmatic or the functional meaning of the songs. Up until now, the function of the music has been filtering through my talk uh, in a number of ways. In the context of work, a key function of the music is to help them increase productivity. So that is the core. Among the Fisher folk, this happens through the provision of reference points for synchronized activity. But quite apart from that, all the other things that the music helps to accomplish have to do with the music managing or triggering the emotions of people and what the emotion can help uh, to achieve. So if the music helps to excite them in a way that is positive, then they get positive outcomes. In a way, the music serves as a space for repairing relationships. Uh, there are examples of songs where people vent their misgivings as part of the work, as they work, they vent their misgivings and there are actually times where you can find somebody else retorting, but all through song. And if you are just a casual observer, you might not notice this. This might totally elude you altogether. But in the context of song, they repair the broken relationships and they forge stronger social bonds. So there are a lot of implications I can think of um, for crisis of music. For starters, these, the, the repertoires are actually finding their way into other musical modes, which are which are more current. So how some of these uh, repertoires have found their way into other musical practices, which are very common uh, today, and how they are using technology to modify some of these musical phrases. But quite apart from that, in terms of the function to which the music is put, and in terms of music helping to regulate emotions uh, or help to manage emotions, that is still very much so uh, in the use of music in other contexts. When people, for example, are running or reading and walking their dog, or when people want to get themselves, elevate themselves into certain states which help them to be more productive, they use music. And perhaps these examples are like 
antecedents of this kind of practice, just not in, in the communal setting, but more individualized uh, use of, of, of that. I'm going to pause here for a minute, and then uh, if there are questions that come up, then I can use it to elaborate further on some of the points that, that come. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. That was really fantastic. Uh, I'd love to invite you on where you're joining us all the way from Ghana, uh, where we'll be pre-recording this Q&A to make sure that, uh, that our connectivity is good and we're able to uh, get to all the questions. Welcome, Eric Deborah Ocheri. Thank you so much, Zanda. My pleasure. You bet. Well, thank you very much for doing this. I know it's, uh, it's tricky to do at this great distance. Um, and you're one of the partners uh, that we have through CASBIS, the Center for Advanced Studies in Behavioral Science uh, with, uh, with, with Stanford. And the, um, I, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about your experience of being a, a, a fellow um, during this you know, very strange year. Were you able to connect with some of the other fellows and, and show your work with them? Yes, yes, very much so. In fact, the year at Stanford started quite bleakly. We weren't sure whether we were going to make it. I actually wrote a song about this uh, that you can hear <laughs> sometime. But um, uh, we had a very great support from the CASBIS team and they managed to pull it off. We started virtually and eventually some of the fellows were able to go to you know, uh, the hill, but I couldn't make it to the hill. In spite of that, we had uh, weekly seminars we had lunchtime seminars, we had virtual lunches um, and presentations and quite some very good interaction with the fellows. So it was very, very worthwhile. And I, I got a lot from, from the fellowship. I can only imagine how it would, it would have been like if I had actually come to the hill. Do we know what the earliest uh, field recordings of, of this kind of music is? How far back do the recordings themselves go? Uh, in terms of the recordings, um, I only have um, from um, the 50s that we have mm -hmm. examples, but there are recordings which are not video recordings that date back to about 1928, thereabout. Mm. And uh, we have some of the fishermen songs filtering into other kinds of the very early recordings of a Ghanaian genre of music we call high life, uh, high life music. And that is basically a mixture of um, traditional language, indigenous languages mixed with uh, when, uh, during the era of colonialism, um, some instruments such as the harmonica or the guitar were acquired. And so you have the local rhythms and the local melodies being played in a different context with different instruments. And so basically you have some of the local melodies, traditional melodies, transposing and finding their way into even the concert halls. And so we, for, from these earlier recordings, there are a few of the fishermen songs that actually made their way. And if you refer to, for example, the, uh, one of the recordings that, that I, I, you have, um, you have the examinamina, you have that one. Um, so that's a fisherman's song. You, you now find it in the context, for example, of a military parade where you have the brass band playing that. And you, you have it uh, arrangements of that for the big time choral uh, choirs on stage with orchestra and, and all that. So we have earliest recordings of these filtering in, in popular musical repertoires way back from 19... 28. I think that's the earliest recording so that almost a century so far. Yeah. 
that I know about. And what's your understanding of how far back some of these traditions go? I mean, is it, I assume it's thousands of years. Yes, I could say thousands of years. Uh, this particular practice where they go to sea and they cast the net and they come back to haul uh, for hours is, uh, is not the only style of fishing that is in Ghana. There are some of the fishing styles where they go to sea, uh, mostly with the bigger vessels, and they catch the, the fish and then they, before they come back to shore. And that doesn't involve long hours of, you know, uh, having to use the signers to, to haul uh, the fish ashore. And so that doesn't usually have this kind of singing. It may have other, dif um, other forms of singing. But the style that we are talking about now um, that I, I discussed is believed to have been introduced by the Ewe, um, the Ewe group. And the Ewe's are found in the uh, southeastern part of Ghana. You find them also in Togo and Benin, and they are believed to have actually migrated somewhere in, into Ghana, somewhere in the 15th century. And they are believed to have started this particular style of fishing. And so um, I think that at least if it doesn't go before that, it actually, we can trace it back all the way to the 15th, sometime in the 15th century, just in Ghana. Gotcha. Yeah. I think you mentioned a few times of how these songs cross into taboo subjects or subjects of, you know, almost revolutionary subjects. Um, and I know that, um, you know, that happened with some of the African diaspora in the United States with slavery, that they were using songs as these kind of express revolutionary or ideas that they couldn't express publicly. Um, can you talk more about how that's, you know, what are these subjects? Is this, is this sexual? Is it revolutionary or are these, does it, is it both? Yes, that's quite a lot. And the music, I should say, permeates almost every, every aspect that you, you can imagine. Um, there is a recording we made quite recently um, along the fishing lines. That was, um, so it's an interesting story. We went to the shore. The local folk, uh, when it comes to COVID, for example, they have a traditional belief that along the seashores, um, people don't really get infected. So among the fishing communities, the wearing of nose masks and so on is not very is not very common. So we went to one of these communities to do a recording, and apparently the crew, me and my team, were the only people really wearing the nose masks. So you could just quite tell that we were not we were not natives. And uh, <laughs> there and then, uh, they somebody improvised the song about COVID and about we wearing uh, uh, you know. So he sang this song, and um, on the surface of it, it sounded as if um, we heard something that sounded like he was making a mistake, that he couldn't pronounce these words well. Where he was going between saying coronavirus and Colona bylos, right? And um, it's easy to just laugh it off because you think he's making a mistake, but um way after we have returned i i got this contact and i've been talking to him and actually what he is talking about is actually saying coronavirus on one hand and colonial bylaws on the other hand colonial bylaws and um, the continuation of the song is actually he was making a comment about um LGBTQI, uh, that became a hot topic in Ghana because they set up offices and we have like a majority of the population still against institutionalizing or passing a law uh, to allow uh, 
LGBTQ, you know, IA and, and all that. So it's a sensitive area that people don't really comment on. And so in the context of the song, right, what he was, he was doing was interchanging coronavirus and colonial bylaws. And uh, the conversation with him, he was saying that um, the imposition or Ghana trying to implement the LGBTQI laws is more like uh, being puppets in the hands of our colonialists, right? That we are long past the, the era of colonialism, but there are people behind the scenes who are pulling the strings. And so Ghana is trying to dance to their tune. And, and, and so, you know, he was saying, basically, is an insult or an indictment on the government or those in, in, in power who are trying to implement uh, uh, the, the, or pass a law on LGBT, legitimizing LGBT, you know, uh, QI. And so ordinarily, you won't be able to say that openly to anybody, but he says that in the context of song. Right. And in a way that if you were to take him on, he can easily say, no, I was talking about coronavirus. But the continuation of the song, right. I think it would be nice to send you that video as well. He says, Koro virus, Koro virus, Koro, Koro bylaws, Koro bylaws. And then what, what follows, he says, Emenin, Emenin, what's a yenida? Which literally means that they are trying to force men and men to lie, you know, to lie and together. But uh, we are against that and we won't do it. So he's, he's talking about this very sensitive uh, uh, topic. And it was around the time when the office that was set up for the LGBTQI in Accra was bent down. And so that was, you know, oh, wow. so some of these areas where they can easily you know, um, create a song to talk about. But uh, quite apart from that, they talk about politics. So obviously they talk about sex. They talk about uh, what they believe in the worldview, uh, what the expectations of men and women, what you know, clear lines of in inheritance. But they also encode knowledge. So uh, what is the oral history of the people and in song, so that if you really analyze a number of the songs, we say they are knowledge songs. They are songs about where they came from, because now we talk about a lot of groups that have migrated from one place to the other. And some of those who are living there were born there. They have never really gone back to their hometown. But within the context of the songs, um, if you analyze the text carefully, it means that if they ever have to go back to their hometown, it gives them cues about who their great ancestor was and where they can find what within the community. So in a way, they are not just singing this, but it's a way of passing down their, their true history from one generation to, to the other. And uh, other things, um, you, you did mention the sexual content. Actually, um, when they return from the shore, from outside the context of work and they come home, uh, there are things that are no no. You never hear from them because, particularly the men, they are the enforcers of of discipline. And one of the things that they consider as discipline is the abstinence from um, sexual talk, pretty much. Um, uh, so, but when they go out and they are singing in the context of the work, it's actually they actually have 
quite an unbelievably large number of songs that have you know sexual subtext and they do that but the same people once the music is over and the work is over it's like drawing a clear line saying okay that is over now we are home hmm. and we can't talk about some of these these things so actually it's, um, there are a lot of examples that go a, a number of ways right talking about slavery talking about um uh, sex, talking about politics, talking about gender roles, talking about um, their oral culture and traditions and histories and and so on, but also uh, comforting each other and, and and so on, quite a number of ways. One of the things you mentioned is that uh, some of the new technologies of uh, of uh, you know agriculture as well as you know fishing is changing the future of this and um, and looking at your videos there's there's very few children I noticed um, participating as kind of a next generation um, what's your take on how the next generation is learning as well as um, how some of these technologies may be endangering these points yeah um, I think then modernity has had its toll on on this singing tradition and um, it, it, it might be fair to even say that perhaps in the next 10 years, these songs will be very difficult to find anywhere at all. Uh, one, because of technology, and this is uh, how I see it. So um, there is some kind of, um, I would say, social distinction. Uh, many of the fishermen that we find today are people who, who did not go too high, climb high in the academic, instead of formal education. And so they often see themselves as, you know, lower class or a particular class of people. But they are working hard to send their children now to school. And if you speak to the younger generation, they help their parents now to do the work. In, in some of the videos that I send, you may find very little children involved in the work because this is how it's an acculturative process. They learn while they are young and then. But many of the youth now, if you talk to them, it is not something they would like to pursue. It is not something that um, they would like to, to do as a career, you know, like their parents. And so um, just from the interactions with the youth, that is one of the ways in which we can tell that this particular, not fishing, fishing always will have a future, but life scale fishing perhaps, or different modes of fishing rather than this particular type where, you know, the music accompanies. The other, other form is that um, they now use outboard motors. So they have these outboard motors that they attach to the canoes and which they are able to, which makes the work easier, particularly going to, to, to sea because they usually ride against the waves and it's, it's quite difficult to, to get into the sea. So before, uh, for, for many years, they were doing that with synchronized activity. You, you had a lot of people who had to paddle and because particularly for the reference point and the synchronized activities, it was fair that, you know, they had a lot of songs that, that they used to row. So these were rowing songs, right? Now, because of the outboard motors, they don't need as many people to go to sea to cast the net. So these days you find three, even four people just going to cast the net and they don't do that to music any longer. So the, the rowing songs, the songs that they used to sing when they were rowing, you, you, you hardly find them. Even now in my field work, we have to assemble the older generation who know some of the songs to just sing these songs to us, although they are very similar. But many of these rowing songs have now found their way in the songs that they sing when, after they have gone to cast the net and they are, they are pulling uh, the nets. And so 
you can see that rowing songs are already obsolete. What they have now is the pooling or the hauling songs, right? And now with, with uh, emerging technologies, there are actually uh, commercial fishing places where they, they use certain machines to even, uh, you know, haul the net. And if that catches on, we can say that we may not need as many people to, to do that work. And as long as that uh, synchronized activity is not um, is not really necessary, then I am afraid to say that the songs, some of them, of course, may find their way in other repertoires, but a lot of them, that practice that we are seeing right now, the music in the context of that work, uh, it stands, it, stands, uh, it faces extinction, imminent extinction. And also there is a rise of multinational fishing companies, you know, and they are able to go to deep sea and they catch bigger fish and they sell it for less, right? So they are also putting uh, those who are doing all these adverse work out of, out of business. So people go to, they have um, sale points where if you want bigger fish and all that, that people go and buy. So gradually um, it is not very, uh very attractive let me put it that way and so people are rather venturing away from that well i want to thank you so much i'm hoping at some point that i can come to ghana and hopefully at some point you can come here as well so it would be great to meet you most definitely point. thank you so much Anda. <laughs> Nudia ya papa ya homi wai Anuntine ule Uliko ya Ayye kona geta Uka ya ten Ule nisiya This conversation has taken you along one of the many paths of long-term thinking. If you'd like to learn more about our projects, take a deeper dive into our ideas, become a member, or watch the talks and see our show notes, go to longnow.org. You'll also find the full audio and video of the talk you heard today. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. Our work would not be possible without you. The work music you heard throughout this talk was provided by Eric Deborah Ocheri. Big thanks to our production team, Daniel Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Forrest Pound, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. Talk to you next time, and until then... Keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view. Bam, 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 bam.